Welcome to the Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast, the podcast bringing you the latest on food, fiber, and forestry research from the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Hello and welcome to the Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast. My name is Nick Kordsmeyer and I'm Director of Communications for the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. We've got another great episode lined up. First, I spoke with Scott Osborne, Associate Professor of Biological and Agricultural Engineering, about his improved method for carbonating beer and how it's helping a local brewery speed up production. Then, science writer John Lovett tells the story of nocturnal pollinating moths and some recent research that indicates they may be more beneficial for pollinating food than previously recognized. And last, our science editor, Fred Miller, has a conversation with Nilda Burgos, professor of weed physiology and molecular biology, about the state of weedy rice research. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode of Arkansas Food Farms and Forests. Scott Osborne is using engineering to craft a better brew in Arkansas. Osborne is an associate professor in the Biological and Agricultural Engineering Department within the College of Engineering at the University of Arkansas. He also conducts research for the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. One of his broad research goals is to provide engineering solutions to small food processors in Arkansas and beyond. Osborne said there's been significant growth in the small food processing industry. There's been such an emergent area of of smaller food processors. The whole trend of buy local and, and produce local, and some foods just have a much better quality, nutrition, et cetera, if you have a much shorter storage time. They're cheaper to make, they're cheaper to, to store, because you don't have to ship them very far. And so that's led to a, a, a tremendous growth in the area of very small-scale food processors. In Arkansas, the craft brewing industry is one example of this growth of small food processing. The number of licensed breweries in Arkansas has increased from 6 in 2011 to 43 in 2020, according to the Brewers Association, a national organization based in Boulder, Colorado. Osborne saw craft brewing as one industry that could benefit from some engineering. Craft breweries rely on small-batch brewing techniques that don't allow for the purchase of highly engineered, large-scale brewing equipment common in national breweries, Osborne said. One process in particular showed promise for improvement, carbonation. The problem with the current carbonation method is that you can waste CO2 gas and it takes a long time uh, to do it. Carbonation is typically one of the last steps in the brewing process. When a batch is finished fermenting, it makes its way to large stainless steel tanks called bright tanks. These are vessels where carbonation takes place before packaging, Osborne said. Carbon dioxide is introduced through a device called a carbstone that releases tiny bubbles of carbon dioxide into the beer. This method, called forced carbonation, is not 100% efficient, however, and much of the gas passes through the beer without dissolving into the liquid. In any bubble that leaves that that liquid level is wasted, and it goes out into the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, and it's a wasted cost. Osborne said the escaping carbon dioxide bubbles also carry some of the flavors of the beer with it, also known as stripping the nose, referring to the lost aromatic compounds carried away by the escaping gas. To combat these problems, Osborne invented a device and process that does away with the carbon dioxide bubbles. In Osborne's new method, Beer is pumped out of the bright tank into a high-pressure tank that he calls the saturation tank. Beer is injected into the top of the saturation tank 
and comes into contact with a pressurized carbon dioxide gas. The concentration of CO2 in that gas is much, much higher than it would be at a, the lower pressure in the bright tank. That more efficiently dissolves the gas into the liquid. So the beer in the saturation tank has a much higher concentration of carbon dioxide. Then we continuously pump this high concentration of dissolved CO2 beer or beverage back into the bright tank, and it mixes in the bright tank. So it's a continuous recirculating process. You don't have bubbles, you don't strip out the nose, you save CO2 costs, and it's faster. Osborne named his invention Carbo Rocket. If you see the equipment, it looks like a rocket, but instead of rocket, we spell it R-O-C-K-I-T, like a rocket, because it goes so fast. Core Brewing and Distillery Company, a craft brewery in Springdale, Arkansas, has been integral in helping Osborne test and perfect his invention. We've been partnering with, with Core Brewing and Distilling Company in Springdale for four or five years. I built the first prototype out of PVC pipe and you know, duct tape and zip ties and all that stuff. And they would give me waste beer that they weren't using, and I would test it on that. Through funding from the University of Arkansas's Chancellor's Commercialization Fund, supported by the Walton Family Foundation, Osborne was able to build a full-scale, food-grade unit to test at CORE. The partnership has been mutually beneficial, Osborne said. Through that process, we got a lot of feedback uh, from their operators. You know, we like to do it this way. And this is difficult to reach this from here, and just very practical uh, feedback on, on how to improve it. After several rounds of initial testing, CORE incorporated the Carbo Rocket into their full-time production process for their brand of spiked seltzer water. It worked great. We reduced their carbonation time from 72 hours down to 6 hours. Osborne said the next steps in his research are automation and evaluation of flavor. He's using another grant from the Chancellor's Commercialization Fund to automate the Carbo Rocket and is planning to conduct a blind taste panel at the Experiment Station's Sensory Science Center to determine if there's a statistically significant difference in the flavor of beer produced using the new carbonation method. Osborne said he wants to help small food processors perfect their craft while maximizing profitability. What we're talking about is not changing their art and what they do, but supporting it and allowing them to do that, but yet maximize their profits, maximize the consistency and quality, but yet still allow them space to do their art. For millions of years, there's been a night shift at work pollinating flowering plants and fruit trees, but only recently have they started to get a little credit for their contributions to agriculture. Stephen Robertson, a recent University of Arkansas Ph.D. graduate from the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology, conducted a three-year study within the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station on nocturnal pollinators. He found that moths can provide just as much pollination of apple trees at night as bees do during the day. It all started in Fayetteville back in the spring of 2016, when Robertson was working on a study to make insect traps and peaches more efficient. When he started catching more moths during the period of fruit bloom, he decided to investigate. Robertson and his co-investigators set up an experiment to determine if moths had an impact on pollination of apple trees. His experiment compared the number of different types of pollinators observed under three different conditions, daytime only, nighttime only, and 24-hour open pollination. The purpose of the daytime only and nighttime only treatments was to exclude moths during the day and bees during the night. Initial results from the first season's experiment suggested the importance of moths as pollinators and led Robertson to continue the experiment for two more years. Ashley Dowling, professor of entomology for the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, 
said the night pollinator study provides further evidence that native pollinators offer an alternative to honeybees for fruit growers. And it makes sense, he said. They've been around flowering plants a lot longer than bees. You know, so flowering plants really started to evolve, diversify 140 million years ago. And at that point, we didn't really have this diversity of bees. Bees came along later. So there was something obviously pollinating before the bees came. And it was most likely moths. Uh, we know that maybe beetles might have been some of the earliest pollinators, but moths quickly filled uh, that niche. And, um, and obviously, Lepidoptera, the moths and butterflies, you know, their caterpillars are feeding on plants. And so as, as flowering plants diversified, moths and butterflies also diversified as well because there was just this abundant food source for, for their larvae, for their caterpillars. In effect, moths and other night pollinators have been the unsung heroes of pollination, and entomology is still catching up on all that they can do, Robertson said. Robertson and Dowling said other studies are also showing the importance of moths to food crops and how they may actually be the most important pollinators as a group. You know, it's just one of those things, I think, the more we learn about the native uh, insects around us and what they contribute to agriculture, that sort of helps pull us away from this system of, you know, having to rely upon a single thing like honeybees to do it. And so just having more options out there uh, is beneficial to everybody. For apples, at least, the case is pretty clear. If you own an apple orchard, all you really need is native pollinators, Dowling said. The added cost of managing honeybees for some crops may not be necessary if further research shows that native pollinators could do the job just as well. You know, knowing that a lot of our native pollinators can actually do a good job and pollinators that may already be there in your fields, around your fields, you know, knowing that, that they might be a sufficient replacement to honeybees, you know, really helps us looking forward. You know, if we keep experiencing problems with honeybees, then, you know, we know we have options. And, you know, it also may change our approaches to things, too, that maybe not so much focus on honeybees and, you know, maybe see what these nocturnal pollinators can do. Uh, and maybe how do we increase the populations of these nocturnal pollinators? You know, can we do things around the fields, having native vegetation and things to sort of increase their populations where then we just have a natural population that could come in and do the job for us? And so... Um, so Stephen's study sort of lays the groundwork for that. It sort of indicates that, you know, at least for certain things, uh, certain plants, the uh, there may be a whole suite of nocturnal pollinators that will do the job for us. Project partners in this study included Neil Joshi, Associate Professor of Entomology for the Experiment Station, and Erica Westerman, Assistant Professor in the University of Arkansas's Department of Biological Sciences. Red rice in the field was a problem for rice growers, but at least it was easy to spot. Now, after years of outcrossing with cultivated rice varieties, red rice has become weedy rice that appears in a spectrum of hues, some of which can blend in nicely with the crop. Dr. Nilda Burgos, professor of weed physiology and molecular biology for the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, has been working on the problem of red rice for years, and now thinks of it in terms of varying hues of weedy rice. Dr. Burgos is here with us today to talk about this weedy problem and how rice growers can stay on top of it. Welcome, Dr. Burgos. Appreciate you being with us today and uh, talking about weedy rice. What is weedy rice? So it is a weedy relative of rice. Historically, we're calling these um, plants, weedy plants, as red rice because these weedy versions of the crop have red colored seed, so red colored kernel. This weedy rice or red rice as we used to call it uh, actually is 
has descended from the same ancestors as our as the crop that we grow. Uh, essentially, we can say that weedy rice is even more closely related to the wild relative of rice. And, and so the crop that we grow has been bred for years, for decades, centuries, from, you know, the first people who had cultured rice from the wild. So rice comes from the wild. And so as, as they have selected across generations for the type of plant that can give them better grain, more grain, or more palatable grain, then in this process, we have also arrived at a point where we have weedy versions of this cultivated rice. So basically, this weedy rice or red rice coexist with rice. So as we culture rice, normally we will see this. You don't call it red rice anymore because it's not always red. Is that right? Yes. Uh, it used to be that we called them red rice. Globally, they are called red rice because the weedy relative of rice, the parent of rice, actually has red-colored seed. So the seed may be so tiny, but they're dark, no, not really even red, kind of dark, almost purple. And then now um, you you mentioned, now what are we calling them? Now we're calling them weedy rice because not all of them have, have uh, red pericarp anymore because of, just because of natural hybridization between the rice and the red rice. And then now we have a mixture of weedy types of rice. That's from some of the cultivated varieties that have crossed with the weedy varieties to create these intermediate shades? Yes. So so because they are essentially the same, you know, the same genus, the same species, mm -hmm. one is just our cushioned crop and the other is the weed, right? Mm -hmm. And so then so then they're still genetically compatible. So they, they hybridize in nature. Now, their hybridization rate is low because rice is primarily self-pollinated. Mm -hmm. And so they hybridize at background levels, we say. And we don't even hardly notice. We don't really notice it, you know, in the field until we pay close attention. And then, and then now um, we've arrived at this point where we have many more kinds of weedy rice because, because now we, we are in the era of... Um, adopting um, herbicide-resistant rice technology. Now we can use uh, herbicide to kill weedy rice and red rice without killing the, the rice. Well, in the process of adopting this, well, the natural hybridization still um, happens. And so, but because of the resistance trait of the rice cultivar now, so then that resistance trait gets passed on to the offspring of the outcrosses. And you're talking about weeds now that are beginning to develop tolerance to the herbicide. Right. So now we're talking about um, weedy rice or red rice that has received pollen from the herbicide-resistant rice. And then, and then now that weedy rice, weedy plant, um, would carry that trait. Talk to me a little bit about the problem uh, of having weeds in the rice for the farmer. You know, we talked about the issues they have at harvest with, you know, differences of maturity, uh, differences uh, in other differences between the weedy rice and the cultivated rice that present issues for the farmer. Why is a problem for them? The weedy rice populations that we have now, some of them would have grains or kernels that are almost the same size or shape as the cultivar. So 
So some of them now look like they're also long-grained. These grains from the weedy plants do not necessarily have the same good quality as the rice crop. What I mean by that is their starch composition somehow is different, which would actually um, impact its cooking quality uh, and maybe even taste. And then also um, fissuring, the tendency to crack, uh, would also differ from, from the rice cultivar. So there are actually physical and chemical traits of the grain that, that matter to the consumer. You said there was also an issue with maturity, if it matures earlier or later than the, than the cultivated variety. So actually, that is one factor that would have a significant effect on grain quality. So if it is harvested too dry, then the grain could be brittle, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then if it is harvested too young, then then the the physiological processes required for a grain to mature properly and have its proper um, chemical composition and all that, um, then that is compromised. So then. So then we would also end up with easily broken grains, for example, because it is too young, right? It's not properly filled or it's not properly hardened. And it alters the starch quality of rice, of course. Then we will encounter all sorts of <laughs> types of grains that could be harvested together with the rice. So we will have, we could potentially have uh, weedy rice grains that are that are too moist or weedy rice grains that are that are too dry. So we're just need to be aware that uh, whatever we do, we don't want to help (laughs) the weedy plants persist in the field. Not to mention, I mean, if you get a lot of weedy rice in with your cultivated rice, they're competing for resources. That is for sure, right. The productivity of this weedy plant, it sucks up a lot of nutrients, sucks up 60% of nitrogen that we apply. It sucks up all of this. It produces, it can produce a lot of biomass, but the proportion of grain that it can produce per leaf biomass, let's say, that it produces, that is not as high as the proportion that a cultivated rice can produce. So what we're doing is we're just feeding it with nutrients, you know, it sucks up the water, absorbs the nutrients, but it's not productive. It's not as productive as the rice cultivar that is being planted. And so that's the problem. So then, so then the cultivar suffers because it, because it's been robbed by the weed of a lot of the nutrients, but then the weed that is using it is not really producing, you know, to contribute to the productivity of the land. So it sounds like you're reducing the yield of your desired cultivated rice because a lot of those resources are being taken up by the weedy rice, which is undesirable quality and also maybe not as productive as the cultivated rice. And so the cultivated rice is going hungry and maybe not being as as productive. Your yields are lower. Right, right. So at a certain level, when we surveyed these to assess the potential impact or effect of volunteer plants or weedy plants uh, on on the rice crop uh, yield. We arrived at an estimate that if the level of infestation of volunteers or weedy plants kind of approaches 10%, then we start seeing some quality effects, some yield effects. And then you can imagine if we continue to have higher infestation from that, then we would feel 
you know, really a significant a significant um, impact of the infestation of mm-hmm. volunteer rice or weedy rice on the crop, whether whether it's going to be on grain yield or or quality. And hopefully, before it gets to ten percent, the farmer has noticed it and is taking some action to yeah. try to correct it. Yeah, and um, and also if the majority of the plants are still red seeded, then of course when they get that to the mill, then of course they will they will already see the effect of that from what normally happens from the price deduction if you have a lot. Um, hopefully we don't get into that situation anymore that that we have that level of infestation. The farmer will incur um, losses in price. You uh, had mentioned uh, to me earlier uh, that you were working on a, an article regarding a, a survey of weedy rice in Arkansas? Oh, that is, um, we've already published that. So mm-hmm. that's published in the Weed Science Journal. So it's a special issue on weedy rice um, across the globe, mm-hmm. across the world. The, the goal is to see how we are doing <laughs> globally um, in terms of managing the weedy rice problem or, or how how intense or how bad the weedy rice problem is um, outside of the U.S. Speaking of managing the problems, I mean, what kind of countermeasures uh, can farmers take? Uh, what actions can they take to reduce issues? You, I mean, we talk about zero tolerance of weeds, for example. What, what sorts of things can they do? One of the things, of course, is that, okay, we, we say we should just not allow <laughs> any weedy rice to remain in the field. And so that's what we're calling zero tolerance. If we do not allow anything to remain in the field anytime, then there isn't any problem with outcrossing. There isn't going to be any problem with more seed deposit into the weed seed bank. Uh, so that's one. So other things would be in the surveys that um, have been done on 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 rice, like surveys done by Dr. Norsworthy and and us and and our team. Uh, it would always come up that the the best recourse to drive the population of red rice down back down is to plant another crop, and the and the other crop that growers plant normally is soybean, but then they could also plant corn or others, and still. Uh, having that cultural uh, practice, the growers still adopted very quickly the technology of herbicide-resistant rice when it came because this one is a very big uh, supplement to crop rotation. Because if you rotate and then you diminish the rice population and then you go back to rice, there's still red rice there. Well, if you have herbicide-resistant rice technology, then then that is great. Then you can spray this, plant herbicide-resistant rice, spray this crop, kill the rice. So if if only the growers can kind of always integrate this, uh, rotate the rice, and then use the herbicide-resistant rice technology with that. And I guess as long as you're trying to keep these plants from existing in your field, don't forget the edges of the field, right? And the ditches. Uh, <laughs> that is so true. So yes, we mentioned that, okay, we have removed everything from the field. And then we say, now we're confident there is no hybridization that's going on because there are no weedy rice in the field. Well, but if we, they are 
if there are weedy rice, the edges of the field, the ditch banks, um, irrigation ditches, these are catchers of pollen from the field. Well, uh, Dr. Burgos, I, I appreciate your time. I know that there's just a ton more that we could talk about in this area. You've worked on it a long time. I think we will finish up here. And I appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Fred, for the time also. A big thank you to all of our guests for joining us on this episode of Arkansas Food Farms and Forests. If you'd like to stay in the loop with the Arkansas Ag Experiment Station, please subscribe to this podcast and check out our news website. In January, we announced the release of three new rice varieties, shared the first episode of a new agribusiness podcast, Relevant Risk, from the Fryer Price Risk Management Center of Excellence, and highlighted one of our faculty, Jin Woo Kim, for his induction as a fellow of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. These stories and more can be found on our website, aaes.uada.edu news. We'll be back next month with more great science and research stories from the Arkansas Ag Experiment Station. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Arkansas Food Farms and Forests. The Arkansas Food Farms and Forests podcast is produced by the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Visit aaes.uada.edu for more information.